Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Peter Schmidt, who is a co-author with Anthony Carnivali and Jeff Stroll of The Merit Myth, How Our Colleges Favor the Rich and Divide America, new from the New Press. Peter, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. So before we talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what your background is, uh, and maybe what your role was in the book and how you all came to this particular project. Sure. Um, So I am a veteran education writer. I spent 21 years as a reporter and editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education where I covered things like college access and affirmative action. Before that, I'd spent six and a half years at Education Week, where I covered urban schools and school desegregation. And uh, I came to be part of this book uh, as a result of uh, becoming a senior fellow at the Georgetown Center in Education and the Workforce. The Chronicle, like a lot of publications, found itself downsizing in response to long-term trends in publishing, I was caught up in the wave of layoffs in 2017, and uh, the Georgetown Center offered me this opportunity. Um, it was a great place to work with uh, because uh, it fit in with a lot of my interests in the past. Uh, I've always been interested in questions related to education opportunity and education access. I had written a book called Color and Money about the whole fight over affirmative action at colleges back in 2007, which had been widely read and respected by people such as those at the center. And so this seemed like a logical choice for me. And the new press had been approaching the center, uh, looking for them to do a book Uh, I stepped in as kind of a writer overseeing the project, gathering together a lot of notes on a lot of different subjects coming from Anthony Carnevale and his research team. And I wove all of that together into a coherent argument, making some broader points. So a lot of the attention on the book is... Uh, on the Ivy Leagues and high selective private colleges, uh, which, as you point out in the book any number of times, this is not where most students in the United States are to be found. So talk a little, does it matter what kind of college a person goes to? Why should we, why should we distinguish between those kinds of institutions? Um, it matters uh, in a lot of ways. Some of, some in which it should matter and some where it shouldn't matter at all. Um, in terms of 
practical reasons why it matters. The resources given to students at selective colleges, uh, the resources spent on their education and instruction are vastly higher than the resources spent on students at the less selective institutions, uh, sometimes by a factor of three, four, ten times as much. There's a massive public subsidization of access to higher education that uh, is on the elite track. Uh, there's basically a lot of public subsidies of conspicuous consumption. Uh, you and I are, are paying a lot of tax money to help subsidize people's ability to brag that their kid went to Harvard or Princeton or Dartmouth or the University of Virginia or you know what, whatever other prestigious school is out there. And partly as a result of these disparities in funding, the graduation rates are much different uh, much higher at the more prestigious institutions than the others. Uh, those institutions have a lot more money to spend on student support. You could take a kid from a low-income background. I say kid here. I'm, I'm 56, so pretty much everybody under 25 looks young to me these days. Uh, but you can take somebody from a low-income background and put them in a prestigious college, and they're going to have a much, much higher chance of graduating uh, than somebody from a middle-class background who you put into uh, an open-access college or a, a college without any sta admission standards at all, or with very non-selective college, I guess, one with low admission standards. So there's a real, there's basically various tracks out there, and uh, if you end up on the lower track, your chances of success are just going to be lower. Now, some colleges within each track do a much better job than others. There are non-selective and open access colleges out there that are doing a wonderful job getting students from disadvantaged backgrounds to graduation. But overall, the trend holds. Um, some of the reasons why it matters, but it shouldn't, is the enormous amount of weight some industries give to the uh, name on a degree uh, to institutional prestige. Uh, in my own field of journalism, I would run into major newspapers that really did not look outside the Ivy League to hire anyone. Uh, certainly that varies by industry and it varies by where an employer is in an industry. Um, but uh, that that is out there as well. So enormous advantages that come with attending and graduating one of these selective private institutions. But as long as they are enrolling students on the basis of merit, then presumably, right, all's well and good. The, the, the students with the best ability, the best potential uh, are competing in a level playing field with each other in order to get into these institutions, right? So, so all's well with the world is one version of the story. And of course, the book is devoted to you all pushing back 
very hard against the idea that these institutions admit students based on merit. So if you would start walking us through the argument, what's wrong with the claim that that these are merit-based institutions? Okay. Um, I'd like to take this in two parts. Uh, sure. One, looking at the claim that they're merit-based institutions, but also really looking at uh, the drawbacks of thinking we have a meritocracy and trying to structure a meritocracy in society. So uh, these institutions, yes, they often have very, very smart kids competing for uh, admission to them. They uh, often have, uh, uh, you know, very talented students and students come out and do well. We have to grant all that. But, uh, they are selecting among uh, populations that they only take a tiny slice of applicants for starters. Uh, so, uh, you know, many students that they take are arguably not any better or worse applicants than others. And they really bend over backwards to lower the bar for students who have cash and connections, uh, people who are legacies or the children or grandchildren of alumni will have an advantage in applying. People who are the children of athlete members and administrators are given a big edge. Uh, athletes are given a huge edge in applying. Uh, there are preferences for people connected to politicians. As a reporter at the Chronicle, I was often encountering college lobbyists who spent a fair amount of their time helping some student get admitted to a college at the behest of some lawmaker who had access to the purse strings. Um, so really, uh, you know, it's not just the admissions office making these decisions. Um, you also have to look at the question within that of how we define merit. And we're currently defining merit based on standardized test scores uh, on the SAT and ACT, when the fact is that wealthy kids can pay for test coaching that raises their scores greatly. Uh, the Georgetown Center on Education and Workforce has done extensive studies looking at the bonus or penalty that's attached in terms of a exact kind of number of SAT points to various forms of, of socioeconomic advantage or disadvantage in life. You know, you can look at somebody and whether uh, their school had uh, a high crime rate or whether they're raised by a single mom or all sorts of different social variables. And you really can expect their SAT scores to go up or down based on uh, th those factors in their life. Um, so SAT scores and ACT scores are very much uh, a measure of socioeconomic advantage. Um, colleges also look at high school reputation which uh, makes some sense, you know, a, a, an A from a very, very, very good high school probably means more than an A from a high school that is in, in rough shape and doesn't have very high standards. 
But that said, uh, there are limits to how much control a student has over access to what high school or over what high school they go to. Um, not everybody can afford to send their kid to Phillips Andover. So, uh, you know, that's a factor that's really out of the hands of the students and doesn't look at how well they succeeded in the environment that they were put in. So merit is defined in ways that uh, reaffirm or affirm advantages in life that that sort of uh, take having uh, wealthy and well-educated parents and turn that into uh, a point in an applicant's favor. Now, moving on, the bigger issue is the question of meritocracy and uh, all that goes into deciding we have a society based on meritocracy. Uh, you have to realize uh, that the term meritocracy came out of a dystopian essay, not utopian, dystopian essay by Michael Young, a British essayist. Um, he talked about a world where people took tests and the brightest were put in charge of everything and the belief that they were the smartest people there and deserved to have that much power turned them into absolute monsters uh, where the others eventually rebelled against them. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, elitism that will come with the assumption of having a meritocracy. Uh, there's a lot of value to the old expression there, but for the grace of God go I. And that tends to go out the window when people think that they that their place in life is decided based on their own talent and hard work and nothing else. So there are real dangers in trying to structure a ruthlessly meritocratic society and allowing for big gaps in wealth and opportunity based on that. And then finally, these things two, these two things come together um, in that uh, meritocracy becomes cemented into place. Uh, advantage becomes cemented into place. Uh, parents who go to elite colleges and go on to get really good jobs, groom their own children to go through elite education and get really good jobs. And it just becomes every bit as solidified from one generation to the next as the aristocracies that we rebelled against in the founding of this country. So what should we do about it? Um, I think, well, there's a lot of different things to do about all of this. Um, mm -hmm. One, we need to pay a lot more attention to social mobility in this country. Um, and I think there's a, an argument from the left to be made for that. But there's also an argument from the right. Uh, if you really believe in a free market, you want uh, people on top to always believe that others are nipping at their heels and that they need to be proving themselves from one generation to the next. Uh, you want to have a society where people on the bottom feel like if they work hard and are talented, they can rise and achieve in life. Uh, and so 
you know, there's 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 a lot of economic sense to, for social mobility. And, you know, social mobility also really helps a society develop empathy. Um, the belief that you or your children could conceivably fall into poverty makes people a lot more attentive to the existence of safety nets and uh, having a lot more empathy for people who are struggling in life, who are homeless or poor. Um, the so it, it it social mobility is just good for society overall. It helps breed faith in our systems. It helps have people in positions of power who have experienced poverty, uh, who know what it's like to be on the bottom, who are going to make decisions on behalf of everyone. So having a tweaking the admissions process to identify talented kids from humble backgrounds and to stop favoring uh, kids based on privilege is going to stop based, favoring applicants based on privilege is going to be a big help. Um, then there's also just issues of uh, improving access to college overall and improving the quality of college education overall. Uh, as I said earlier in this in interview, we are skimping in terms of our uh, expenditures on community colleges, open access colleges, uh, non-selective public colleges, the colleges that really do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of preparing people to make a decent living and be active citizens and participate in the workforce. These are populations that are slipping through the cracks often and becoming alienated and stuck on the bottom. Uh, we really should be focusing our efforts on making sure everybody has the education they need to be able to handle uh, change in the economy, uh, to be able to move from one industry to the next if the industry they're training for goes away, uh, to be able to make a living wage. Um, and we're not doing that right now. Um, in fact, we have you know such high dropout rates at some of these colleges that students are spending a lot of money and really not getting uh, the credential that's going to help them uh, stay afloat in life. They're actually coming out with more debt than advantage. Um, so shifting the our resources to pay more attention to the population as a whole will be a big help. Uh, as part of that, at all levels, we should be trying to give more financial aid, helping more students afford college. Uh, I think it's worthwhile to hold the feet of selective colleges to the fire in terms of the share of Pell Grant recipients that they let in. It's worthwhile to require that they be transparent about their admissions criteria so that we don't have things like the uh, Operation Varsity Blues scandal that was so much in the headlines last year pop up. Um, that was really just the, the tip of a very, very uh, dirty iceberg. Uh, the fact is that it, the way the admission sausage gets made is not uh, 
is 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 not a pretty process almost throughout colleges. But as, as you point out, so much of that process is it's chasing money, right? It's chasing wealthy parents who can make donations in the present and make donations in the future. Are you hopeful that particularly sort of selective private colleges, is that so intrinsic to their business model that it is foolish to expect them to increase the number of lower income students in their ranks? Uh, well, in the book, we talk a bit about how much colleges are actually financially hurting themselves with this prestige chase, uh, with the most significant example perhaps being how much colleges are spending money on tuition discounting, trying to offer a bargain to upper middle class parents to lure their kids away from another selective college. Uh, there are a lot of private colleges out there. Uh, less prestigious, small, private liberal arts colleges that are expected to fail just because they are so much undercutting each other in terms of their budgets with tuition discounting. And with a lot of this stuff, uh, and I'm talking about uh, flagship public universities as well, um, we're kind of in a, trapped in a spiral here that we need to uh, try to break free from. Uh, the perception that uh, colleges are reserved for the wealthy, uh, the perception that higher education is not good, higher education is not accessible, causes people to see higher education as a private good rather than a public one, and to be less inclined to support colleges with their, with their money. So it creates a circle where public support for colleges declines. Uh, colleges then go chasing tuition dollars and donations to try to stay afloat. Uh, to do that, they're spending more and more money on amenities, the rock climbing walls, the you know apartments that are the dormitories that look better than the apartments a lot of people lived in generations ago with their, when they got out of college. I mean, it just, uh, it's, there's, a, there's a lot involved there where it's money that's not being spent on instruction. It's being spent on prestige and it's being spent on marketing and it's being spent wastefully. Um, one of the biggest obstacles here, and, and it is a tough one, is it's hard for colleges to reach any sort of truce or agreement on this stuff uh, without potentially uh, running into antitrust laws. Um, they've had that problem in the past, but there are ways to negotiate through that. And certainly uh, the public at large and the government don't really have any good reason to be incentivizing this prestige chase. Uh, they can be doing things like tying public funds to greater public accessibility, uh, especially right now with COVID-19. We are at a point where colleges are appealing for huge infusions of public support. 
And we have every right to say, you know, if you want public support, you need to be serving the public. And, you know, we haven't been doing that in the past nearly as much as we should have. You are listening to the New Books Network. We have been speaking with Peter Schmidt, who is a co-author of a terrific new book from the New Press called The Merit Myth, How Our Colleges Favor the Rich and Divide America. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a good day. It's great to be here. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.